Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome two guests to the show today, Griff Perry, co-founder and CEO, and John Griffin, co-founder and CERO at Meter. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Yep. Yeah, Thank well, you. thanks. Yeah, thanks. Normally don't have two uh, co-founders on the show, but this is great. More information coming our way. Uh, so I'd love to kick the sauce off. John or Griff, tell us about your background. Should I start? Sure, yeah, Jeff, yeah go, go for it. Uh, John and I have known each other for like a long time, well over 15 years now. Uh, we originally met because I was John's customer. So back in the day, I, I originally started my career in media and I worked at a, um, a big television firm and I was responsible for building our online TV platform. And I appointed a very smart systems integrator that helped build us that platform. And it was John's responsibility for selling to me. So I made that error early on in my career. And then he and I have been sort of attached at the hip ever since. <laughs> Great, John what, yeah. John, what about your your story? What about your story? Uh, so, you know, I started off uh, in engineering um, and uh, especially around the topic of big data and data engineering um, and kind of felt I left that discipline way too early. It just so transpired that I could talk and sell this stuff as well as build it. And the company kind of pulled me into development and new customers like Griffs and, and building those accounts. So that's how come we ended up meeting. And so I worked for a, lot, for a boutique systems integrator in England for about 10 years, at least 10, 12 years. And that company focused on large, hard IT platforms that most companies didn't want to build themselves. And the particular wave that kind of brought me into Griff's path was the, the media one, whereby they were all scrambling to build uh, over-the-top television uh, platforms. And we, I guess, were given a head start by Griff's company, Sky TV. Um, and we managed to end up building those same kinds of services for most of the UK's large media companies. And that then took us to the States uh, where we won big projects with the likes of Disney, AT&T, Liberty, and people like that. Um, and, and so our specialty really there was, was building large complex IT systems with lots of moving parts. And so I know that you're specifically interested in SaaS and stuff like that, but this kind of predated, mm -hmm. predated that ever so, ever so slightly. It was, you know, towards the end of the 90s and early 2000s, so we're kind of building a lot of these things from scratch using basic tools like IBM WebSphere and Oracle and things like that. Yeah, interesting. And were you both corporate, you know, the corporate life and then jumped into founder life or serial entrepreneurs? Was was there a transition there? So it's going, I mean, it's certainly the case for me. So I was originally a strategy consultant and, and then I had a corporate career, just working mm. in corporate development and business development and then product leadership at large companies. Um, and then sort of hopped into sort of the startup life about 10 years ago, John and I had founded two companies together. So the first company was a SaaS company focused on the video game space, which we sold to Amazon about five or six years ago. So, but yeah, I was corporate first. John, I guess it's slightly different, isn't it? Well, yeah, I was corporate first. I started with Pricewaterhouse, but realized the more maverick life was for me. And so the systems integrator in the UK I joined was a lot smaller, a lot, you know, more, more specialized. I think it was really just about 90 to 100 people when I joined mm -hmm. and went back to the corporate life once after we were acquired in our last SaaS company that Griff and I set up. So worked for Amazon for 
three to four great years. Mm-hmm. And those are my two real kind of corporate kind of experiences. Although most of the customers I've worked with over the years have been large corporates. And so I mm-hmm. definitely enjoy working with them, mm-hmm. just maybe less so for. Not in in the the big corporate. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So thanks, yeah, thanks for sharing your background. So yeah, t- let's talk about Meter. And we've talked before, Griff, and really interesting products. So tell us of what Meter does. Let me tell you why we did it, and then it'll become yeah. clear what it is. So I mentioned that we had a business before a SaaS company. We deployed a particular type of pricing that wasn't very fashionable 10 years ago or so when we originally founded the company. So it was usage-based pricing. It worked really well for us. Uh, but we experienced all kinds of operational and go-to-market pain points associated with it. And we felt that when we sold that business to Amazon, we worked AWS, like John said. Now, the interesting thing about them is they are also a usage-based pricing company, albeit on a much bigger scale. But what was interesting is that they had exactly the same pain points that we'd had. So at that point, we started thinking, oh, there's something about usage-based pricing that's hard and challenging for SaaS companies. And so we founded Meta to to help SaaS companies deploy usage-based pricing effectively. The nuts of it is, is there is a, there's a gap in the stack when you start adopting usage-based pricing. It, it's essentially an infrastructure gap. You need to meet the usage data, you need to combine it with pricing, and then you need to deliver the outputs, which are, are basically charge amounts and usage summaries throughout the organization. I mean, it will drive billing, but you also need it to support great customer experience and enable your sales and customer success teams. So yeah, so I would describe this as a pricing operations platform, but that's what we do. John, that fair yeah. enough? Yeah, John. Uh, you're, you're yeah, great. it was great. No, 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 absolutely perfect. And, you know, so really interesting, you know, I just released my fourth annual tech stack report for finance and accounting. Now I'm calling it more of an operational tech stack report. And you know, tech such a focus now in the back office and expanding, you know, for the office of the CFO. So I'm curious, where does Meter sit, right? We've got our ERPs or we've got QuickBooks, Zero, NetSuite, Sage, for example, popular uh, accounting solutions in SaaS. Then we have subscription management solutions. So where do you sit in that tech stack for usage-based pricing companies? John, you want to take it? I mean, the one thing I would say yeah, yeah. is that we we would see ourselves as being part of that tech stack for CFOs. I mean, our, our buyer is is often, probably most often, the CFO or one of their key key people. Yeah, I mean, so jumping in, right? Like, obviously, we're a pricing operations platform, and and pricing kind of touches all parts of the organization, from product through to sales, through customer success, and obviously finance. And so the issues that most CFOs end up inheriting is is that they're not in full control over pricing decisions that are necessarily made throughout the organization, but they certainly inherit uh, all the results of those and have to kind of put all the pieces together at the end in order to build customers successfully and in order to book revenues appropriately on time and and correctly. Um, And so Meter is really targeting those guys to help solve the problems that they essentially have in picking up all of those various different pieces. So we help the engineers get the data into the Meter environment and platform in a scalable and resilient, reliable way. We help product design and facilitate ongoing pricing change. We allow sales facilitate the fact that within a sales environment, salespeople are going to get creative with whatever pricing model is out there 
and end up sending details to finance to bill customers correctly with a wide range of interpretations of what the core pricing model is. And to date, you know, finance has really had to take all of these various different data sets and put them together themselves. Now, inevitably, that's using spreadsheets and the like. As you get much, much bigger, that's definitely not scalable. So then a large range of handcrafted systems that are you know, not easy to change emerge. And so Meter really is sitting there for the CFO to plug into whatever finance system using, whether it be NetSuite or, or any of the others that you mentioned, and enables them to ingest all of these various different data sources. And our output for them is billing instantaneously in real time uh, and uh, information that helps them book all of that build revenue more reliably and, and more quickly. So say I'm a SaaS founder, SaaS CFO listening, and I've got my accounting system and I've got my SaaS application that's usage-based pricing, and it, it's collecting the data in the app of you know maybe number of transactions or usage or whatever it might be, and it's sitting in the application. And so you would integrate into the SaaS application, like you said, you're working with those engineers to extract the correct data, comes in a meter, and then the next step, then that data is processed, and then it flows into the accounting application. Would that be the flow? Kind of, of, the data? Kind, of, kind of, kind of, yeah. And so first of all, you know, we have to be very flexible at all edges of the platform. So for the engineers, there's a large variety of ways they can get their data into Meter, which is why, which is why um, companies inevitably choose us over others. It's, it's that flexibility. And so we can pull data, they can push it, we can, you know, share agents with them that allow them to take their data, however they currently have it, and put it into Meter without doing much work on their side. And for the CFO's point of view, it's just the usage data is re reliably finding its way into the, into the Meter environment. From there, it needs to be priced. And inevitably, pricing is coming from the sales and CRM environment, not necessarily the original design, but the implementation of that or the manifestation of those price, pricing designs with customers. So usually what's happening in the sales team is your salespeople are closing deals and with that saying the deal terms that the customer has agreed to. And that information automatically flows also into Meter. Such that when the CF, you know, the any any person in the finance department can just log into the meter platform and see what a customer's bill is running at at any point uh, in the month. It's in near real time. So they can just see where their bills are any point in time. And then they can share that information with external systems, either their internal analytics platforms, with their own customer dashboards. Um are, are even back into the kind of Salesforce or CRM environment that the sales team is using. So if I'm a CFO kind of listening to this, you know, so you've connected to all the data, you bring it in a meter, you process it, you price it, which is really important. And then how am I actually, do you invoice or then do we need to feed that data into my accounting or invoicing platform to actually invoice the customer? Yeah, meter, one of the outputs of meter is billing data, uh, but it's not the same as invoicing, is it? Because there's mm -hmm. a lot else that happens with invoicing, you know, taxes added, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so what meter does, is it produces the line item outputs that need to be put on an invoice. And so typically what customers are doing is allowing meter to create an invoice in the target system, whether it's NetSuite, QuickBooks, Sage, whatever. And so Meter will create that invoice with all of the necessary details. That finance system, the NetSuite or whatever, through a tax plugin like Avalar or something like that, mm -hmm. will add tax to it. 
-hmm. And then we'll handle the issuing of the invoice and handle, you know, the kind of dunning process uh, that's attached to credit days, et cetera. And that finance system also handles revenue recognition and booking mm -hmm. of the revenue. But meter, very importantly, provides all of the information with those line items, such as the exact period the usage was associated with to that revenue recognition component of their finance system so that the revenue recognition process is seamless and close to instant. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I, I did this in spreadsheets when I had to do this at one company and it was not yeah. fun. So definitely see the need. And of course we know, you know, now it's just not tra tra traditional subscription pricing. That was kind of SaaS 1.0. Now we're on all these different revenue streams. And I've seen with SaaS companies up to five different distinct revenue streams on their PL. So getting more, more complex. So really, yeah, really, really interesting. And one last thing around the product area, Meter, any, any tips and tricks for SaaS founders or CFOs when they're thinking about, well, we've, we, we have traditional MR pricing or annual invoicing, and now we want to add some sort of usage component. What do they need to consider first or anything that you see where, where SaaS companies kind of fall down when they're trying to transition to user-based pricing? Griff. I'm going to point oh. at you. Give me thinking time for about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, there, um, there, there are a bunch of things, but I just call out a few. Like, I mean, we've we've obviously been touching on the fact that doing billing is hard, mm -hmm. and so you know, you often find people who sort of adopt usage-based pricing really struggling. You know, it'll take them a week or two to get invoices out. And it'll consume a lot of resource and a lot of time, a lot of people that could be doing other things that were probably more impactful. So definitely think about that. Definitely think about revenue leakage, you know, particularly when you're operating at scale. Because you'd be amazed how often we find really significant revenue leakage with our customers. You know, we have a lot of customers who are brownfield. So they they are a successful company that deploy usage-based pricing and then they move on to meter. And one of the things that we do is we're onboarding them is to true up what they were building before, what they, they should be building. And often we find there's been, been mistakes. It's basically, there's lots of data out there that they don't bill for either because they don't know it's there or because it's too complicated to. So that's a really big upside of getting things right. I mean, you can avoid um, some leaking revenue like that. I would, all, I, another couple of things, I, I would think a lot about the customer experience because when you're doing usage-based pricing, Pricing becomes part of the product. So the customers want to know how much they're using and how that's converting into spend at any given point during the month. It's like, oh, right, you know, it's the second week of the month. How much have I used? What's the running total of my bill? And so you have to give that information to them. Otherwise, well, you might surprise them or they'll be frustrated. So that's a key thing to think about. And I guess the final thing for me is pricing is one of those things that's never done. So, you know, what you, you hope that you do it once, it's perfect, you never have to touch it again. But the nature of pricing is that it's deeply iterative. Like there's a lot of trial and error involved. And even when you get reasonably confident about your core pricing model, you start adding new things to it, or you start adapting it so that you can have sort of custom pricing for your big customers to, to make sure they're happy or you retain them effectively. So you're constantly, constantly gnawing and iterating away, iterating away at pricing. So you, you sort of have to have that continuous pricing agility. I mean, that would be the one that, that, that was the, that key point was one I was going to kind of double click on. You know, for many people, 
particularly new SaaS companies, you set your pricing, you realize quickly it probably could have been better or it should change over time. But very quickly, in as you're kind of growing up as a company, you kind of lose that ability to change it because grandfathering pricing or doing anything like that ends up being quite a big initiative. Um, and you're really trying to minimize churn through the whole process. And you're trying to transition customers gracefully from one model to another, as well as explaining to them, you know, you know why. And, and so it's really that point is like understanding that, that if you're going to go on a continuous journey of pricing evolution, and it never before has it been as important as it is in 2023. Okay, if you're going to go on that journey, you should really, really get yourselves the muscle that allows you to be good at it uh, and allows you to be agile. And so, for example, we're just coming up to the end of an implementation of Meter which will have the impact of all the things we said already. It'll significantly reduce billing time from, you know, I don't know, two weeks to two days kind of thing. It'll allow them to book their revenue much, much faster and file taxes much, much faster. It, it basically will have a significant reduction in, in billing errors. We've already, and we always do, by the way, in our implementations, find significant revenue leakage. I mean, in some cases, millions of dollars. Okay, so we'll always recover that. So you're going to make more money and it's going to take le less time. But the key thing is, and for this one particular organization I'm thinking of, they've got a significant pricing design change coming up. And that would have taken them, I mean, it could have taken up to a year before. But it'll take them weeks with a platform like Meter at, at its center. Because we've automated all of those linkages between the things that are reliant on pricing. Yeah, I love that. I, I can imagine on the revenue leakage side, there's some big eye openers when you look at, you know, like, all right, here's how you did it. Here's how we did it. And wow, you missed out on a lot. But those are great points. Revenue leakage, customer experience, right? We want correct invoicing going out to our customers. We want it timely. I've been the recipient of invoices where it's just completely wrong. It's like, guys, get your act together here. If you can't invoice me properly, even close, you know, what is going on within that company? And of course, yeah, we know pricing is never done. It's iterative process. So great points. Love that. So what, I think you mentioned 10 years. How long has Meter been around? When did you found the company? We're about two and a half years now. So it was the fall of 20. It was a pandemic baby. Oh, yeah. I talked to a lot of founders of the, are you right before the pandemic or pandemic? Yeah, SaaS baby. So, okay. So fall 2020. Yeah. yeah. And then where are you guys located? Do you have an HQ? Are you virtual? We, so we actually always plan, we are remote first. So, and we always plan to be, it was slightly easier to explain it to the various stakeholders once the pandemic had, had bitten. But yeah, we, we, I always emphasize that it's remote first rather than remote only, because we do actually spend time together in person because we think that's really important. So um, for anybody watching on video, my background is the, is the view from the hotel we were in last week. So we brought everybody together and spent a week, a week together and it was fun. But yeah, that, that's, that's the model. But so the center of gravity is UK and John's based in Ireland. We've got our first boots on the ground in the US now. So we're becoming increasingly global. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And then what's your current team size? About 50. About 50 staff. Okay. And then anything you want to share around revenue range, ARR ranges, or, or scale or magnitude of meter right now? We haven't shared that publicly. So uh, We'll give numbers, but we are growing quickly, and which is sort of fun and challenging at the same time. But, but yeah, no, we're making great progress. Yeah, good problem to have. 
And then tell me, I'm really curious, you know, about your go-to-market motion, because it sounds like, I don't know if there are one or two ICPs that you have to sell to, maybe the engineering team, the CTO, and, and then also, of course, the CFO. So tell me, how are you finding your prospects and, 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 and who do you have to convince within those companies? So I think the first thing to say is, is that what Meter is great at is complexity. And so whenever there is usage complexity, whether it's scale or the different nature of usage or wherever there is pricing complexity, or indeed the Z variable billing complexity, i.e. wherever you see usage-based models, you inevitably have different charging or billing models such as prepayments, commitments, the need for balance drawdowns, pay as you go, all of these things kind of go hand in hand. And so wherever you see those things, Meter is great at that and possibly unrivaled. And so wherever we find those needs within a customer, we have a generally uh, e easy time because it's we've got a compelling uh, platform that basically solves for exactly those requirements. Uh, our ICP is generally a, a kind of mid-size uh, software company, mm -hmm. uh, SaaS company, you know, probably... 50 million and above revenue, mm -hmm. ARR, likely 500 or, or more people has possibly experienced the pain of some of this stuff already. So we're very kind of acutely aware of it. We typically sell into one of two kind of key areas within that business as a first kind of beachhead, either the CFO, because they're the ones that really understand the broader company needs, the transitions that are going on, et cetera, et cetera, and are planning for them. Or they will have tasked somebody in product to lead a team to evaluate uh, what the options are against, usually against uh, billing it themselves or something. And so we kind of speak to either of those two. Um, generally pointed at North America and Western Europe, although we do have customers in, in APAC. And that's that area is growing for us all the time, too. Um, what, have I, what have I left out, Griffmeister? Yeah, nothing. I, I think, I mean, so the buyers tend to be, as John said, finance and product, but, but um, engineers are obviously sort of key stakeholders. And so um, we spend a lot of time talking to them uh, and there are various other beneficiaries around the company, even, that, even if they might not realize it. So sales is a classic example, like this information that we can deliver is, um, is a real enabler for sales and sales teams. So, but yeah, we tend to focus on finance and, and product as they're, they're the people who either own the initial billing operations pain or they're the people who are most aware of the, the what's limiting the progress of the company. And that, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'm, I'm just curious where you mentioned targeting companies greater than 50 million ARR. Is that in not going lower? Is that because they know that it's a, just an acute pain point and they understand it completely maybe leads to a shorter sales cycle? But I imagine there are 10 million AR companies, 20 million AR who are going through the same problems. Why aren't you are. hitting those lower lower groups yet? You know what? Uh, we we have plenty of those as customers, uh, but just from a, a point of view of kind of uh, strategic go-to-market motions and things like that, we tend to focus on the large ones um, primarily because they have the operations, like whether it's rev ops, sales ops, billing ops or whatever, that really understand this problem space very well and are very attuned to looking for a solution to it and then hearing what it is that we have to say about how to solve the particular pain they have. 
Okay. So just, you, they've got the teams in place. They understand the problem that just pain points, they're ready to move, uh, which makes sense. And I imagine, yeah, you've got smaller customers than that, but uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And now on the fundraising front capital, how much have you raised to date? So we, uh, we've announced 17 and a half million to date, plus a little bit of pre-seed that we put in ourselves. So yeah, it's an yeah. interesting fundraising journey. Yeah, definitely. And I know in your announcement, your PR announcement, you mentioned the 17 and a half million seed round, which is a really large seed round. So I'm curious, any thoughts or, or do, did you just say, hey, it was kind of our first round, let's just call it a seed, even though that's a sizable amount? We, we think about it as a seed because that matches the stage of the company when we raised it. So, you know, we were still in the early stages. I mean, we were sort of shipping product, but I wouldn't say that we'd established product market fit compellingly at that point. I mean, obviously we built something, we'd sold it to interesting customers, but we hadn't really delivered enough data points to, to say we were sort of really on the way. And obviously we're a much different business now, but that's how we were back then. So that's why we think about it as a seed. I mean, yeah, it's, we were fortunate to be raising in a time where you could raise that kind of money. And obviously we're doing something that's pretty interesting. And I think there, there is an emerging category here, but yeah, that's what we called it a seed. Okay. Yeah. makes sense. And what triggers or milestones did you see that led you to that, that raise of, you know, you mentioned maybe raised a little bit before, but now 17 and a half million in total. Did you see something or milestones or just said, we we're ready for this amount of capital or we need this amount of capital at this stage? I think, I think at the time, what was triggering it, triggering the interest from the investors was the quality of the vision and the quality of the product and the reassurance that there were initial high quality customers who, who were bought into it. So it, it wasn't based on, it wasn't based on uh, revenue momentum. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that followed. It was based on potential back then. But it, but it was real. It was tangible. We, you know, we, we had real product, real customers. It, yeah, that, that would be, the I think, what the trigger was. Yeah, so really interesting because, right, we know it starts with that story. Maybe we don't even have product yet or just it's a capital-intensive product to build depending on what it is. So really not saying, hey, investors, here are metrics, here is our revenue, here are all these numbers that support this story. Really is you just had that great vision, that great product that investors got excited about and wanted to be part of, of your journey. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And it's sort of like, you know, we're, we're clearly, you know, this is enterprise software. Mm-hmm. And we're focused on that slightly more mature business. So it is, as you say, quite capital intensive. Yeah. I mean, you have to build quite a lot of product to, to be at that MVP level for a customer like that when it's a critical piece of infrastructure as it is. So, you know, this all made sense. I mean, we needed to raise something like that in order to build something like that when things have gone nicely. So that's all well and good. Yeah, and I was going to mention that it seems like you can't just come up with, say, MVP of a, a CRM system and kind of get by. This is, has to be probably much more advanced MVP to work in these complex environments. Yeah, I mean, this Definitely. it's critical infrastructure. It touches yeah. it touches dollars. You know, if it if it doesn't work, that's a big problem. And these are you know these are mature, established businesses with you know hundreds or thousands of customers. So, yes, yeah, it is quite a sort of a demanding threshold for that MVP. And, you know, there are aspects of the solution that just have to be there from nearly day one, such as, you know, your security and operations accreditation. 
but also a very important and you know often under talked about area of the platform is how you integrate with these other systems it's got to be native it's got to be very closely integrated with whether it's the CRM system or the finance stack, but also the marketplaces and all kinds of other systems like that, just to deliver the vision that you're selling, which is automation. You know, so there's just a lot of elements of the platform that have to be in place in order to mm -hmm. deliver on the vision. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm guessing of your current, say, staff of 50, a lot of the a lot of that staff is on the engineering side. Predominantly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And then for the SaaS founders listening, any fundraising lessons that you learned in that 17 and 17 and a half million that you'd like to share? Well, I, I would spend it slowly. <laughs> the, um, I'd look back over the two of our startups. So yeah. we did one and then we done a second one. So I'll tell you one thing, it's much easier to do it the second time around. Um, being a sort of established founder or founder team who've had some success in the past makes it much easier going going forward and you, you realize over time how much particularly the early stage investors are investing in you as a team and your ability to solve problems and to react what you're seeing um, in front of you so yeah I, I think I think John and I are quite old but I think we're still quite high energy so and there was a real sense of sort of unfinished business from our previous startup and I definitely think that's something looking back on it I think that's something that our investors all reacted to John, any thoughts on your side as lessons learned in fundraising? Yeah, actually, yeah, I'll I tell you, one of the things that sticks out in my mind from the whole process is choose your partners carefully. I think we've been really, really fortunate to have some of the best in the world from both sides of the pond, both in the UK and the US. If you, if you, I guess it's on public record or will be on Crunchbase mm -hmm. who, who, are, who our VCs are, but you know, they're really, really good partners and they've been incredibly helpful to us. And so, you know, particularly as you come out of that, you know, the first block where your MVP is there and you're trying to build that early uh, traction in the market, VCs can be wonderful, introducing you to their portfolios, et cetera, et cetera, making it real easy for you. Yeah, let's, Actually, let's yeah, we give a little light on those guys because I see that, you know, your, your investors include Kindred Capital, Union Square Ventures and Insight Partners and so on. So those are some, part of the investment team. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so, you know, Union Square, I mean, our partner there is one of the finest people we both get to work with, incredibly smart and bright. Um, in Insight, you know, you get the same thing, but, you know, they've invested heavily on uh, operational capability in support of their portfolio companies. And so, for example, within there, they have a resident pricing specialist whose job is to consult with their huge portfolio of companies on, on pricing design and change. And wherever there's pricing design and change going on, there is opportunity for a platform like ours. And so that's a very kind of symbiotic relationship. And, and Kindred, I don't want to leave Kindred out. I don't want to leave Kindred out. You yeah, you better not. You better not. I, I was gonna I was gonna chuck in one other thing that like like a penny's dropped for me is your, your VC pitch can often get in the way of your sales pitch. So they're different audiences and they want to hear different things. And, you know, I mean, very simplistically, you know, the, the, your customer wants to hear how you're going to solve the problem right now. And the VC wants to hear how you're going to build a great business over time and build from solving those problems right now to other problems in the future. 
I think that's something that we've learned over time as well. It's like you, you deliberately flick into different modes depending on your audience and it, it could be quite different. Yeah, I love that, Griff. And that's the first time I've heard that yet is really you can't just use your VC pitch and then go talk to prospects and use that same language and vice versa. So really two distinct pinch pitches depending on your audience. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, you, you, if you use your VC pitch with customers, it can leave them completely cold. Because yeah, you're, yeah, you're talking to, yeah. Definitely. Also, the first time around, we didn't go the VC route. You know, we raised money from other sources, angels and things like that. Definitely prefer this journey from that perspective. Kind of helps just create the momentum around your business a lot faster. So I think if you're doing it a third time, Griff, you up for a third time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're doing we'll, we'll it, yeah. might just go the VC, VC route again. Yeah, we'll have you on again when you, you found your third company. So yeah, appreciate the insight. That's great for founders listening. And as we wrap up here, what's next for Meter? What's coming up that's exciting? Ooh. Ooh, well, there's actually a lot that is particularly interesting to your audience because obviously we provide sort of this platform that onboards all this data and delivers it around the company, but there's a lot of other things we can do with that data, which will make the life of finance leaders easier, like particularly around forecasting or margin analysis. So yeah, that's that's the kind of fun things that we are working on in the background right now. And, so, and then yeah, from a kind of revealing for and then from a customer perspective, uh, there are some very interesting case studies of people that are now using this platform to impact their business significantly, all coming out over the next few weeks. So the SaaS CFO audience will be able to read those and they can get them on the meter.com forward slash uh, blogs, I think it is. Ed Griff, help me out there. Uh, they'll be able to find they'll be able to find all of that content on there. And so th that'll be cool because there'll be real life case studies about how you know meters effectively enhanced their 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 business. Yeah, so case studies coming up and a really good point about forecasting because you think of CFOs, right? We need data. We need good data to forecast to tweak our model. And if without that, you know, really hard. So not only just pricing, invoicing in that platform, and then that feeds good data really into the FP&A process to do a lot of analysis as well as make our forecast models more accurate. So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. So if, so I really appreciate you sharing your time or sharing your story today. If listeners would like to learn more about Meter, where should we send them online? Meter.com, M3TER.com. Meter.com, so M3TER.com. Yes, correct. All right, perfect. So check, check out John and Griff at Meter.com and really appreciate you sharing your journey today. Cool. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very Ed. much. All right, I'm going to stop.